Good morning. Glad that y'all are here. Everybody uh, made it on time. There's no reason not to be. You got that extra hour of sleep, which also means that there's no reason for any of you to fall asleep. So in the sermon I'm watching this week, I'm going to be, I'm going to be calling you out. One thing to help keep you awake this morning is we're going to start off with a responsive reading, and it's going to come from Psalm 136. Guy, can you flash this slide up here? This is going to be your part. I have a part, you have a part. Now, we're not going to read 136 in its entirety, but I'm going to pick out a few verses. I'm going to read a statement, and then you just respond with... Okay, here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. To Him who alone does great wonders. Who by His understanding made the heavens. Who made the great lights. To Him who divided the Red Sea asunder. To Him who led His people through the wilderness. And gave them land as an inheritance. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. Give thanks to the God of heaven. So I think most of you are familiar with this passage. We've done this before. This is only a a short portion of the, the 25 statements made in Psalm 136, all in which we respond, His love endures forever. Now, why are we starting off in Psalms, and what does this have anything to do with, with Mark and, and the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, I, just, I, I really love this, because we don't know for sure, but quite possibly this was, this was a song that was, was sung or perhaps chanted by Jesus and His disciples before they headed across the Kidron Valley. And I just love that that little tiny detail that we get that after the Lord's Supper was over, they sung a hymn together. And we don't know for sure, but there's good reason to believe that, that this was the psalm that Jesus sang, the last one He would have sung with His followers. I wonder how many times that was heard over and over in His head as he made his way to the garden, as he knelt down, as he fell down and and he pleaded in agony, I wonder how many times he thought to himself, but his love endures forever. A God who would lead his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. You know, this is really where it's, all about to take place. This is, this is just really the beginning of the end, and Jesus knew this. Now, I, I can't honestly tell you that I'm the world's biggest Texas Rangers fan. I grew up in Arlington. I went to a lot of games. 
right? And so if there's ever a team I'm going to cheer for, it's going to be the Rangers. But you know, and I know, 62 years is a really long time not to have a pennant. And I watched them play a lot of games and do well, and they hit the all-star break, and then they just fall off. But for whatever reason, Jennifer and I just really started watching them, not until the postseason. I get that. I'm a fair weather fan. But we started watching them, and man, they just, game after game, on the road, they just kept winning. And one question that they kept asking the players after the game was over, you know, when you know when they had to have this this crucial strikeout or, or this, this big hit, mainly it was the big hits, they would say, what were you thinking? when you walked up to the plate? What were you thinking right before the game? What were you thinking when you knew you just needed that one more out? And so that's really what this sermon about this morning is. What was Jesus really thinking when he knew what was about to happen? He knew what was going to happen. In fact, as we read through the gospel accounts, we're going to see that that Jesus was very specific and particular about where he was going to be and what he was going to be doing because he knew he had to be in the right place at the right time in order for this to work out. And he didn't run away from the place where he knew they would be looking for him. He went directly to it. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time somewhat in Mark chapter 14, but we're also going to find ourselves uh, in several other places. Uh, I'm going to be combining all the gospel accounts so we can get just a, a really good uh, understanding of what was going on in the garden. None of them contradict one another but some of the, the different Gospels give us a little bit of different details. So what I have here is just the, the full account of, of the garden leading to it up until the point where we get to Judas. And, and we're going to kind of tap the brakes on that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about another garden uh, that, that happened a little bit before that. But if you would join me as I read this, you can uh, choose Mark 26 mainly, but also Mark, uh, Matthew 26, but also Mark 14. It says, then Jesus went out across the Kidron Valley as usual to the Mount of Olives with his disciples following him to a place called Gethsemane. And there was a garden. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And pray that you will not fall into temptation. So let's stop here for just a second. This is going to be another one of those times where I'm just going to really ask you not only to soak in the text, but I want you to respond to it. What are some things that you catch just from this opening paragraph that really stuck out to you? Yeah, as as was his custom, as is usual. And so that means two things. First off, and we know this already, but Jesus had the habit of praying. And not only did he have a habit of praying, he had a favorite place that he liked to go to. And so he went there. Now, you have to combine all the gospel accounts to figure out. Some of them don't specifically mention Gethsemane. Uh, in fact, only in John do we have that it's, it's a specific garden there. Right? So he goes to the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane. Does anybody know what Gethsemane means? 
It's, it means olive press. Well, you say, well, of course it does, because there were a lot of olive trees um, around Jerusalem. They would have used olive oil quite extensively. But I just think there's something else to it. The, the fact that Jesus was going to a place, in order to get that olive oil, it had to be pressed and squeezed. And this is where Jesus is going to find himself. He's going to go to a place where it just literally, he is just, he's going to be squeezed because of the agony that he's in. But there's a big question that I have. And I want you to think about this too, and it's the last thing that I read. It's the statement that Jesus made, and we find this in Luke, and he says, and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Quickly, I just want us to point out, Jesus is not asking them to pray for him. He does not say, pray, so I don't fall into temptation. So I want to clear that up already. I, I don't think that, that Jesus ultimately is going to struggle with what he needs to do. I think ultimately he's going to struggle with what God is going to ask him to do. He's not saying, I don't know that I'm going to follow what my father says. I think he's going to struggle with, is this really the only way that we can do this. And so we're going to sit there, but what, what could they be tempted about? Why is he telling them not to fall into temptation? But specifically, but what temptation do they have? What is he worried about? Okay, so there are those specifically the three in the garden. Who are those three people, by the way? Peter, James, and John. And he looks at them and he says, and pray that you don't fall into temptation. I'm, I feel pretty strongly that this was not a general, hey, pray for yourself. I think it was a very specific, pray that you don't fall into What are they tempted about right here and now? You know, a part of me says, well, maybe they would be tempted to run. But they have to run. And I know that sounds weird to say that, but, but even he is going to reference the fact that, like, the, the shepherd is going to be, and the sheep are going to be scattered. Okay, that right there is a prophecy that's going to take place. If he's praying that they don't run, he's praying that a prophecy doesn't happen. So it can't be that. What's the temptation that they have? Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's the temptation that once again they're going to lose sight of what the ultimate purpose of Jesus is. And maybe they're still convinced, Peter, the, the, the swinging the sword Peter, taking off the ear of Malchus the high priest, maybe, just maybe, he, he's saying, look, don't, don't get caught up in what you think has to happen. And don't lose sight on me. That's, 
That's just, we, we've got to keep going on. He, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he drew without a, about a stone's throw beyond them. He fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What do we have from this section? Okay. Okay, so Jesus was concerned about the will of his Father. This is a terrible analogy, and it doesn't really fit real well, but it does just a little, it's clunky, but just go with me here, right? And so um, in, in our family, on, on Sunday after church, we go to lunch. Um, that's, that's our, it's kind of our special treat is we go out to eat. And, and so each um, week, a different person gets to choose right? This week, folks, it's not my week. Um, this week, um, it is Gracie's week. And Gracie is a little bit of the wild card, because you just don't know what she's going to say. So here's the deal. Because I'm a good, loving, kind father. <laughs> I don't want to get struck down. Okay. Okay. I know... Here's the deal. I know that we are going to go wherever she wants to go. The question is not, am I going to go where she wants to go? What's the question? Where is she going to pick? And so in the same way, when Gracie says, I want to go to this place, my question is not, am I going to go with you? My question is, are you sure? Is there another place? Is there another way? Can, we, can I still follow you, but not have to follow you to that place? Right? And so in, in, in a very crude way, this is what Jesus... Jesus is not saying, I don't know that I want to follow you. Like, I'm not sure I want to be faithful. His question is not, do I want to go... Where you're going, his question is, but do we have to go there? And this is a really big question because all of Christianity revolves around this question. And a lot of people, I'm going to say ignorantly, walk away from Christianity because they're confused about a God who would be so hateful that he would say, I would allow people to go to hell. But this is the answer, because what kind of God would allow people to go to hell? It would be the same God who would give up His Son and everything to keep you out of it. But a loving God has to say, it's still your choice. But a merciful and gracious God would say, but I'm offering you another way. 
Are you willing to follow me? And I can take you to a place where you long to be. Father, Daddy, everything is possible for you. And I will follow you. And then we have this, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him in being in anguish. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling from the ground. We, we only have this in Luke. And in fact, if you read some of the earlier manuscripts, this particular, these two particular verses, verses aren't in every manuscript. And I would love to talk about that, but we'll save that for another day. But I, I have good reason to believe, as many scholars do, that this was actually in the very first ones. And, and some people choose to leave it out because it was kind of hard and difficult to understand. Um, we've since then, now that we have a better understanding of, of medicine and, and the body, there is something known as uh, hypohydrosis um, that, that is the... Um, the, the potential of, of blood cells actually breaking under the strain and the pressure, uh, and that could come out in the form uh, of, of blood. Or, or maybe it was just he was sweating, it was like drops of blood. But nonetheless, we know this, the anguish was great, it was immense, it was so much so that God dispatched one of his angels to go down to Jesus. And I'm just curious, what if, what if you were the one? What if you were the one that was in heaven and God says, I need you to go down and comfort Jesus? What would you possibly say? How would you offer comfort? I think the only thing you could do is be reminded of the love of your Father and the love that you have for the people that you're doing this for. Because there's no, there's no way to, to soft-coat this or sugar-coat this. There's no way to, to, to make it seem any easier what he's going through and physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually what he's about to endure is something greater than anyone in all of mankind would ever have to deal with. It's not just the nails. It's not just the wood. It's not just the, the, the suffocation of hanging on the cross. It was the sin that he was bearing for all the people. And then he rose from prayer, uh, prayer and returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, couldn't you keep uh, watch after me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he went a second time and prayed the same thing. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back and found them sleeping, it was because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. He continually called them, join me in this as, as I am hurting, and, and pray for yourselves as well. How in the world 
could someone go through what he is about to go through and his concern is still on other people? Pray that you don't fall into temptation. That you're not overwhelmed. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. Look, that hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And this is where Judas is going to enter the scene. There's going to be the kiss on the cheek. There will be the swords drawn. And there's going to be this this great confrontation which ultimately leads to Jesus being taken away in chains and everybody else running. They just couldn't stay. And they had to get away. But what I find really special about the Garden of Gethsemane is the contrasts and the comparisons to that of another garden. And I think this is where it all comes back together. Because Jesus is going to do what Adam couldn't or didn't or wouldn't. And for just a minute as we close out, I just want you to think about some of these contrasts between the two. You see, for Adam, living in the Garden of Eden, one tree represented life and the other one ultimately offered death. But for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, one tree offered both knowing that it would have to be his death that would bring life. If you remember early on in the creation account, Adam has been created. He's looking around at all the animals. And God looked down at Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. In the Garden of Eden, God provided a helper, a mate, someone who would become one flesh with Adam. And so it wasn't good for Adam to be alone in the garden, but for Jesus, that's the only way that it could happen, is that he would have to do the will of his fathers, even though all of his disciples had left him. In the Garden of Eden, Adam hid from sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus set out to carry everyone's sin. Remember, Adam said, it wasn't me, it was her fault. She's the one who did it. And Jesus, who had made no mistakes, no sin, and now it was his turn to say, it's not me, I've done nothing wrong. Instead, he says, I will take the sin of everyone else. Eden was intended to be a home forever. Gethsemane was only meant for a few hours for Jesus. Adam left the garden to go into the world. Jesus left the garden to save the world. In the garden, Adam shifted the blame. In Gethsemane, Jesus took it. In Eden, Adam walked with God. And in Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded with him. In Eden, Adam only wanted his own will. 
But in Gethsemane, Jesus sought God's will. And what I think applies to all of us is that Adam's actions in the Garden of Eden created a barrier in which we could not be near to God. But with Jesus and His work in the Garden, He tore down those barriers and said, what Adam did, what Adam took away in being near to God, I am replacing the suffering, the sacrifice, the agony, the pain. The fact that it was so great that he fell down on the ground praying and begging to his father. Understanding that the physical pain was going to be part of it, but for the first time in his life, he's going to have an emotion and a feeling that he's never had before. For the first time in just a few hours, Jesus is going to feel shame. Never before was there any reason to feel shame. But now, because of what you did and because of what I did, He bore that shame for us. It was excruciating. And it is somewhat surprising. Because never before had Jesus ever been shaken. He sleeps on a boat when the waves are crashing in. The crazy demoniac who tears through chains and cuts his arms with rocks comes running at him and Jesus is not at all afraid. Jesus is attacked and interrogated over and over again by chief priests and Pharisees, and he never flinches. And now in the garden, his followers witness something they've never seen before. Jesus just, he breaks down, he falls down on the ground, and he pleads because of the weight of our sin was on him. But folks, that means something. If he's carrying that weight, it means you don't have to. And that's why we're here this morning. Now, some of you are still carrying it. You shouldn't. You don't have to. You don't need to. Jesus says, I want to take it. It's mine. But some of you are still stuck saying, oh, but, but I'm a terrible person and I'm no good. And, and Jesus says, look, it's mine I've called you and claimed you. Just follow me. And so this morning, I'm going to ask that as we stand and sing the song of invitation in just a moment, I want you to be willing to just put your hands out and say, God, this is yours. I don't, I don't want it. I don't need it. I can't handle it or hold it. It's wearing me down. And just say, God, take this. The broken relationships, the struggles, the past, the thoughts, the lust. I, I want to give this to you. You carry this. Let me just follow you into eternity. Please give that up today and follow him as we stand and sing this morning.